Hi, and welcome to the Indie Books Podcast, Marketing uh, with a Book, where every week we come together with our studio audience of uh, authors uh, at the Indie Books International uh, Publishing Company. And we get a chance to interview a number of our authors and special guests. At Indie Books International, uh, by the way, that is www.indiebooksintl.com. We've carved out a bit of a unique niche uh, in the marketplace. While we want you to sell books, our philosophy and our approach is that we want to make sure that your book is a gateway book to doing more of the good work that you feel called and compelled to do, whether that is more coaching engagements, uh, keynote speeches, consulting assignments. We want to make sure that you not just write a book, but that you write the right book that leads you to doing more of your good work. I happen to be in downtown Minneapolis, and I serve as the uh, chairman of Indie Books International. Uh, the president and CEO of Indie Books is my business partner, Henry DeVries. And what we do typically is we do a little bit of a round robin here of our authors, and each of them will do a short uh, introduction, just their name, where they're from, and the book that they are working on or the book that they uh, have just published. And so I would love to start with uh, David Goldman, and then Chris Hodges. Thanks, Mark. Hi, I'm David Goldman, and I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. However, in, uh, in the winter, I'm in Bonita Springs, Florida, uh, and happy about it. I wrote the book, uh, How to Get What You Really Want. Uh, it's called The Road to Happiness, How to Get What You Really Want. And, uh, and currently, I'm co-authoring a book with Henry and Mark called uh, Bringing in the Business. Very excited about that. Thank you, David. Uh, Chris Hodges and then Dave Sparkman. Hi, my name is Chris Hodges. Um, I am the author of Noble Automation Now. I would hold up my book, but it's right above my shoulder. How to Innovate, Motivate, and Transform Your Business with Intelligent Automation and Beyond. I live in Denver, Colorado. And I think that's it. All right. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Mr. Sparkman. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Dave Sparkman. I'm in the process of writing a book called Spark Your Culture, How to Ignite and Fuel Your Success. And I'm hailing from Vista, California today. Oh, thank you, Dave. Good to see you. Good to see you. And, and Henry, uh, let me uh, toss the talking stick over to you. Thanks, Mark. Hi, I'm Henry DeVries. I'm the author of the book, Marketing with a Book, and co-founder of Indie Books with Mark. Today, I am not in Oceanside, California. I'm on the coast of Oregon. Uh, tomorrow, I speak to 30 managers on how to persuade with a story. So, so we demonstrate everything we want you to do, so I take to the road from time to time. So interesting this year that um, I had zero bookings in 2021, something about a pandemic. Uh, this year, I already have nine speaking engagements uh, that people pay me to go out around the country and speak. So we're doing some of that. So Mark, thanks for taking the host duty today. Thank you, Henry. And the only place to go from zero bookings is up. 
and you you are on your way. Uh, today's guest is Rachel Braun Sherl, and her topic is based on her new book. Her topic, How to Become an Orgasmic Leader, and I'm very much looking forward uh, to hearing from her today. She focuses on driving growth for companies in the space from menopause through menstruation. She has completed hundreds of strategic growth projects for leading consumer and pharmaceutical companies and venture-backed startups. She sits on boards of directors and advisory boards for companies in sexual and reproductive health. She serves as the chief development officer for Pulse, a company that is transforming personal care. She has authored many articles and her best-selling book, Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness. In 2021, she co-launched a podcast, Business of the V, focusing on the intersection of unmet needs in women's health and the businesses being created to respond to them. She is a frequent speaker at universities, colleges, and industry conferences. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much, Mark. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I guess uh, there's a lot of different directions I can take this interview, but let's start first with a little bit of your story. Feel free to take however much time you need, but give us a window into your world, both business-wise and personally. Okay, so I will uh, start, I'll, I'll condense about 30 years of work experience um, into a couple of minutes. Uh, when I graduated from business school, I went to J&J, um, worked on, was a product management for Tylenol and was the most exciting thing and is exactly what I wanted to do. And what's interesting about that is those relationships um, and the skills I learned were really fundamental and foundational to everything I did subsequently. So as you mentioned, I, I focused on strategy and growth, and it's really focused on how do you get people to buy more of what you're selling in a nutshell. And I've done that for every category you can think of from the tops of your heads to the tips of your toes. In 2008, a venture capitalist showed me a business plan for a product that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women of all ages and life stages. And it was essentially the perfect storm of opportunities. It was a product that was clinically proven. Most of the clinical products, projects underway had stopped uh, because it's very difficult to prove um, meaningful results in this space because of the complexity of women's sexual response. There was no language, people weren't talking about it. So it was just, there, there was so much to grab onto. So my business partner, Mary Yench and I raised venture capital and we bought that asset. Um, the product's name was Zestra. We bought the asset and then changed everything else except the formulation. Um, we launched it and built the company and exited in 2013. And based on that experience, um, I really wanted to stay in the women's health space, although I've always been in and around it. So since then, I've been focusing exclusively on companies that have some foothold in sexual and reproductive health. So it could be large brands like Trojan, it could be venture-backed brands. And I spend a lot of time in the 
sort of my sweet spot is in the intersection between the venture-backed startups and the potential corporate strategic partners where I built relationships over my career. Um, personal story is shorter. I've been married to the same terrific guy for uh, 32 years, almost. We have two grown children, an older daughter and a younger son who are actively out pursuing their own careers. And as they were growing up, we spent a lot of time watching college and junior squash, which was a passion for both of them. Wow. What if, um, I'm curious, I'm shortly will be celebrating my 40th year of being my own boss and being in business for myself. And there was a pivotal moment when I was 21 years old, I was inspired by the two words, you're fired. <laughs> and I made, a, I made a vow at 21 that I would do whatever it would take to make it on my own. That, that was a, obviously a, a meaningful moment for me on my journey uh, of work uh, and my life. And uh, happy to say that uh, uh, I've, not that I've made it, but I'm making it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've experienced the good, the bad, the ugly, and the great. Was there, was there something along your journey that was a, a pivotal or a defining moment that set you on the course that you are on today? A hundred percent. I'm smiling because as you were talking, I can remember the moment. Um, I had just given birth um, to my daughter and the company that I was working for had, we did a lot of work for J&J. So again, that connection, that's when I went from the corporation to being a service provider. And they had two projects uh, that I could be staffed on. One was in South Jersey, I was living in Connecticut and the other one was in Brussels. And um, I was put on the one in Brussels and knew I was going back to work full time and I've always worked full time. And after seven months of spending a week a month in Brussels, I said to myself and to anyone who would listen, if, if they were paying me, literally I said, if they were paying me $10 million, this job isn't worth it. And suffice to say, uh, 26 years ago, they were not paying me $10 million. And I realized at that moment that I really wanted to be in charge of my financial future. Um, and I wanted to make decisions about who I wanted to work with and how I wanted to work. Um, because as I'm sure you've experienced over the years, you figure out what works, you figure out what's energizing, you figure out what's enervating. And it was at that moment that I said, I'm gonna be in charge of this. And I've been on a very straight path um, until that point, and I'm gonna jump without a net. So that's what I did. That was, wow, 1995. And I've essentially been um, self-employed except for a few stints in between when I was running a venture-backed company and now I spend part of my time as a chief development officer um, working for myself, which you know is great because some days you can say to yourself, you're fired, and then you could get hired back the next day. That's, that's the good news about being your own boss. Uh, you can always rehire yourself. Um, why, and, and I, I, the word why sometimes can put people back on their heels, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to do that, um, but why, you on women's um, sexual health and wellness? It's really interesting. Um, you know, part of it is just we had gotten hired. My business partner had come from Richardson Vicks and Procter and Gamble. 
they moved to Cincinnati. She was still in Connecticut. Um, I left J&J um, for dual career reorganization. And so we had a lot of relationships with the brand people at those two companies. And we just started to build relationships or strengthen relationships and wound up doing a lot of women's health. So for instance, I spent five years traveling around the globe for J&J, um, identifying trends around menstruation and, and new product ideas. A lot of work around baby, um, birth control, hair care, skin care, psoriasis, foot fungus, hemorrhoids, you, you name it. So I had a lot of experience talking about consumer health and also pharmaceutical health and devices. And it was somewhat serendipitous when the venture capitalist who handed me this plan gave it to me. It wasn't a direct link. You know, everything looks linear in retrospect. So I can make that story sound a lot more uh, well thought out than it was, but it was the right opportunity at the, at the right time. And when you're a marketer, and I'm sure uh, lots of folks on the line experience this, you want to be in a category that's emotionally engaging. And I have yet to find one that's more emotionally engaging than talking about um, female sexuality, sexual pleasure, menstruation, birth control. It's not all equally appealing to um, other people. And apparently lots of people are uncomfortable talking about it and I'm not. And I really, I like it. I think part of building this category is creating a vocabulary. And that's the part of it that I really like. I think it's, first of all, a huge business opportunity. I wanna start there, um, that when you think about women's health, a couple of statistics just to give you some frame of reference. 43% of women at some point in their lives have sexual con concerns and difficulties. 1.1 billion women will be in menopause by 2025. Close to 50% of pregnancies each year are what I would call mistimed. A third of women never have an orgasm. 33% of women at some point in their life suffer from incontinence. You know, the list goes on and on. You know, fewer than not all the states in the US require um, sex ed. And some of those that require sex ed don't even require it to be scientifically or medically accurate. So that's just a few in a nutshell of how many big challenges there are in this space and how complex it is. So as a business problem, it's incredibly fascinating to me. As a category, it's of personal interest. And you know, women make 85% of the healthcare decisions. They're little by little controlling the majority of the world's wealth. And people in this space talk about you know, women's health is everyone's health. If they're the leaders of the family, if the, if the mother is not well, what are the impact, what are the economic and personal and emotional impacts that have on the whole family? It's just so multi-layered and so exciting. And every day I'm learning something new. And every day I meet people in this space and I have or the privilege of working with them or for them or interviewing them. And this space, which is very broad, um, really attracts creative thinkers, um, innovators, visionaries, you know, bold personalities, because there are a lot of idiosyncrasies of being in, building businesses in, raising money for, and advertising for businesses in this space. So, you know, I, I got into it, it was sort of like an ebb and a flow, but when that business plan hit me, it really just felt like a perfect storm as a marketing opportunity. And then once I found that I was facile in talking about it, and that I could talk about it as a way to grow my business, you know, 
all the pieces started to fall into place. What has surprised you most uh, in your journeys and travels and speaking engagements? And, and maybe since the, your book came out, what has surprised you the most? Well, Henry told me that this would be the case, but somehow you have a lot of knowledge before you write a book. And, you know, people respect that somehow when you put it down, you know, when you write it down and mm -hmm. you publish it, it sort of puts a different glow around you. You know, the fact it, it took some work for me to say, go from, I wrote a book to I'm an author. And, mm -hmm. you know, so there's some, you know, excitement about being in this very uh, small club of people who have done that. Um, in terms of surprise me, I would say in 2008 and 2010, when I entered the space, I was particularly surprised that we went to 90, 100 media outlets, cable, website, um, network, radio, didn't matter. And 95% of them rejected our ads. And so after doing that and meeting with the heads of networks and trying to figure out why you could have Viagra on at 5 p.m. during the Super Bowl, and I couldn't advertise a product for arousal, desire, and satisfaction at 8.30 p.m. on Lifetime, where I'm pretty sure no 11-year-old boys were watching those television shows, um, that there had to be a better way. And so the reason I started speaking was we created a business strategy that said, if we can't buy media, we're going to earn it. So it was in that, from that perspective that I went out as the president and co-founder of the company that I was working in and with to talk about the disparity between men and women's advertising, to talk about how you couldn't get on Facebook, to talk about how everything was blocked. And what's amazing is when I told people about that in 2010, how could this be? That's when the first article came out about us in the New York Times about the disparity between men and women's advertising. The next day um, featured on Good Morning America um, and um, The View. And the following week, Mary, my business partner and I did an eight minute segment on ABC News. So it was very instrumental as a business building tool, but it also points out some real challenges in building businesses in this space. So I wanna fast forward to literally February, 2022. I was just moderating a panel and one of the panelists was a young woman by the name of Jackie Rodman, who completed, created a nonprofit called Center for Intimacy Justice. And she just released a report, you know, of which I and many people in the space were a part of, where in 2022, she published a report of the 60 companies that she interacted with and entrepreneurs, 100% of them had had their ads blocked by Facebook at one point or another. So when you think about that, I don't know of any statistic where it's 100%. I mean, I guess, you know, taxes and death is, you know, the only thing that you can say is 100%. Um, that even now in 2022, we're having the same discussion. So that is still shocking. And after this report came out, you know, I published an article that says um, everything old is news again because we've been talking about this. There have been people in the space, myself and dozens of others who have been shouting about this for a long time that you can have you know, what look like flaccid cactuses simulating male genitals in, in ads all over the place, but a nursing mother is somehow too sexual in nature. So I'm continually amazed that we're still fighting this same battle. Um, we always, we all hear about the disparity between how, how much venture capital men founder, female founders and men found, male founders uh, make. We also know the disparity between the percentage of investment decisions that are made by women 
none of this helps, but what we've been seeing over the past few years as more businesses, more entrepreneurs, more creative sources of capital, more women with money are really changing the dialogue. You know, of the 60 companies in this study, um, 59 of them were founded by women and one was founded by a non-binary person. So it really is difficult to separate the gender, the nature of the business from the ability or challenges around fundraising and advertising. What I've really been focused on and I remain excited about is no one sitting around saying, woe is me. You know, I make 77 cents on the dollar, you know, I, we get 2.3% of venture capital, but really much more focused on how as a community of entrepreneurs, academics, healthcare practitioners, investors come together and bring companies that are serving enormous needs to the marketplace. You know, I think you might do better if you were just a little bit more passionate uh, <laughs> about what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I get that a lot, Mark. You, <laughs> you used a word and I wanna, I wanna come back to it, uh, shouting. Now, uh, maybe in a little different context, uh, when you speak at conferences or universities and colleges, um, if, if you're standing on the mountain, what, what are you shouting, uh, shouting uh, in your speeches? What, what, is, what, what is the message that drives you on a daily basis to get up and do the work? A couple of things. First of all, I have to tell you that when I'm invited to speak, it often has many provisions. So for instance, I was asked to speak to uh, the female leadership of an NFL team. Um, in the Midwest, and they said, we'd love to hear you talk about your book and about business and overcoming business challenges, but please don't show the title. So I had slides that were like this. So they, what people want to hear the experience and they want to hear me connect it to the challenges and the, you know, the triumphs and the tribulations of being in female health, but they often have lots of restrictions. So I focus on a couple of things. I focus on, for me, the first article that I wrote um, that got traction, and this was years before I wrote the book or thought about writing a book, was how to find your leadership voice because Oprah's is already taken. And the idea is that you spend so much time understanding how to build a business plan or manage finance or control your supply chain or build an operation, you know, a successful manufacturing operation. And we don't spend as much time in how we put that all together and present to the world as a leader. So one of the things I speak a lot about is how do you do that? And Henry taught me this, uh, broke it down into three very easy steps that people can learn and process. And my objective when I'm speaking is that I've hopefully said something that a person can, this is the objective I have when I'm in the audience, that I've hopefully said something so people take one or two nuggets of things that they can do and act upon. You know, the focus of my, my speaking, and, and this is really how my business brain works, is it's great to share information, but I go from the information to the implications. You know, I talk about what it's like to be a leader in a complicated space or to be standing in a conference room with, you know, a bunch of men whispering to each other while you're talking about sexual satisfaction, literally saying, you know, remember that girl I took to the prom, and I'm not making any of this up. Henry knows that I can, I can talk about that fundraising experience for a long time, but going into places as, you know, I had been a successful entrepreneur, but when they saw us, they saw two women 
who had never raised money before. They saw two women um, who were, you know, I was in my mid forties at the time and my business partner was older and they were talking about vaginas. You know, so a lot of the, the conversations I have is about, okay, you're in a situation where you have three strikes. How do you get on first base? How do you, how do you not strike out at the plate? How do you continue to figure out how to find solutions? And that started for me um, when I was raising money. And it's a longer story, but I'll make, it, I'll make it brief. But we, in two days, had appointments with 13 venture capital companies. And the first one we went into, and they're all you know, feet apart. And it looks like they all bought the same office furniture. And the perky person at the front desk just goes from office to office. They describe that they have varied investment theses, but when you're the entrepreneur going to one after the other, it is a bit hard to distinguish. So we go into the first meeting and the first questions we get are about Viagra and we answer how um, the sexual response of men is more like a hydraulic pump and we give a scientific answer and compare that to how women's sexual response is still multifaceted, you know, blank. And, you know, we knew enough to know that your only goal is to get to the next meeting. So, we knew silence was bad, but we got something worse, which was like laughing and whispering. So we go to the next, clearly we don't leave that first meeting with a nickel. And I, I've said this many times, I pictured like you get that big check from Ed McMahon that you know we're writing a check for $13 million. So we left there with nothing, not a quarter, not a nickel, not a big uh, paper check. The next meeting we went into, uh, they said, what does this say about satisfaction for men? And we answered the question that the study was done in 13 um, sites. The, the study was peer reviewed, um, placebo controlled, double blind, all the characteristics that you would want for a pharmaceutical study. And this was for a product for arousal, desire, and satisfaction. So it didn't require um, that lef level of scientific study. And we said, well, the product, you know, the, what the, me the metrics, the measures in the study really were about her satisfaction and desire and arousal. If the man's, this was done with heterosexual couples in long-term relationships. And if there was a report of increased satisfaction on the part of the man, it was because he either felt like he was a, a more capable partner, his wife was happier, um, the experience was different, better, longer, more exciting, fill, you know, fill in the blank, but that because of the way the product worked, and we said things like the product didn't um, penetrate the stratum corneum of the penis the same way it did the vaginal tissue. Okay, so we think, you know, we're talking about the category, we're waiting to get a strategic question, how are we gonna grow the business? Who's gonna buy it? How are we gonna exit? Who's our target customer? None of that, we're literally getting, I, I use the expression that, you know, it felt like we were in a seventh grade um, locker room and then I said that was probably insulting to seventh graders to be, you know, compared. To this and I'm literally looking at grown men whispering, you know, whispering loud enough for us to hear about their sexual escapades. You know, we considered us ourselves serious business people. So we now have 11 more. It's clearly not going well. Not only are we not getting questions, we're, you know, we're getting nothing. So we know in the first two meetings, we're not going to be asked back. So Mary and I huddle in between and we decide that we're going to come up with a different strategy. And I have, I never carry cash, um, but I happen to have a hundred dollar bill on my wallet. I don't know why. To this day, I say it's divine intervention or dumb luck. We look at this hundred dollar bill. If you looked in my wallet today, if there's a single, that would be unusual. 
because um, I like to track everything. That's another part of my uh, type A personality. So Mary and I see this $100 bill and the light bulb goes out and we're whispering and strategizing and we come up with a plan and we said, listen, it can't bomb as bad as the first, as badly as the first two. And if it doesn't work, we still have 10 more. You know, we're not, this is not our last um, time up at bat. So with this plan, we walk into the third um, meeting and I have the $100 bill and I smack it on the table. And I said, here's $100. If you ask us a question about the category that we can't answer, this $100 bill is yours. If you make a sexual innuendo that we haven't heard before, this $100 is yours. If you make a joke or make a comment that makes us blush as it relates to this category, this $100 is yours. I paused and then I said, she likes it more. She wants to have it more. Let's talk about the business model. And when I talk about orgasmic leadership, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to do with uh, women's sexual health, but it was at that moment that we changed the whole conversation. We changed the energy in the room. We communicated that we were serious people here to talk about serious things. And if you're going to be uncomfortable, have at it. But but we can take it, bring it on. And we want to tell you how we're going to grow this business. And oh, by the way, take your money and then return it tenfold um, if you invest. And when I was starting to write the book, I looked back at that moment and said, that was the day that I became an orgasmic leader. That was the way that I, the day that I took control of a conversation that made other people feel uncomfortable. And by the way, it was required to build this business. I happened to like it and I happened to feel like I got great responses when I did, but it was critical. I had to talk about these things that no one else wanted to talk about. And I clearly don't mind talking, actually I enjoy talking about to raise the money and to build this business. Rachel, uh, do you think of yourself as a courageous leader? It's interesting that you say that. I just was, um, I just wrote an email to her, I saw a, a colleague in the space um, post something on social media and she's talking about, you know, uh, being sexual at any age and she's being interviewed and she starts in um, fully clothed with jewel, jewelry on and you see over the course of it, by the time she's done, she's in her bra and underwear. She's 62 years old, talking the same whether she has clothes on or not. And I wrote to her and I said, boy, I thought I was brave. <laughs> I said, I'd do a lot of things. I'd go into a room where I didn't know anybody and I asked for a lot of money. I talk about vaginas. I talk about sexual dysfunction, but I would not strip down to my underwear and bra anywhere other than in the confines you know, of my own home. And so when you say, am I brave? I, I would say that I'm willing to try things and I'm willing to fail. And if I fall down, I'll get up. Uh, but there are people who are, you know, certainly braver uh, than I am. And because it's so part of what I do, literally, I'll walk into a space and I'll be introduced to somebody. It could be social. Um, it could be professional. It could be volunteer. And they say, oh, she's the vagina lady or she's the vaginapreneur. And it becomes sort of my calling card. So is it brave to be a vaginapreneur? I don't know. It's, it's so part of, you know, what I do now. Um, Brene Brown uh, did this one hour special on Netflix and she said this most amazing thing. I mean, she says a lot of amazing things. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are fans and she, and I'm paraphrasing, but she says, if you don't feel uncomfortable, 
you're not trying hard enough. And so when I get that feeling in the pit of my stomach, which I do, I don't get it when I go up into a stage. I, I don't get it when I'm standing in front of a group of people, but when I'm trying something that I think, you know, you know, there are lots of pitfalls, potential pitfalls, which is a lot of business. And I get that feeling. I now say, oh, okay, I'm on the right track. You know, I feel like, you know, I really could use a soda to settle my stomach. This must be because I'm trying hard enough. So I think you learn, you know, after being hit in the head enough times and experiencing rejection enough times and, and demonstrating that you can get up, it doesn't feel like bravery. It just feels like the way I approach life. Um, I wanted to share one other example that's unrelated to my business about that. Um, Scott Hamilton, who was an Olympic gold medalist and a four-time cancer survivor, um, had been the, the face of US Olympic figure skating. He had been the commentator. And one year, maybe it was two Olympics ago, I'm not sure, they replaced him with Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski, who are still doing it now, who were younger. And so the journalist in the article asked him, you know, how do you feel about that? And he said exactly that. I won a gold medal. I skied professionally all around the world. I've had these opportunities that I could never imagine. I've, I've had cancer four times and survived. And I've fallen down 41,612 times when I was practicing and I got up every single time. And I sort of think that that's, that's, that's what being brave is. It's, it's not giving up. It's knowing that it, it's not what happens when you fall down or who knocks you down or how far down you go, but what happens when you stand up and you sort of you know, live to fight another day. Thank you. <clears throat> um, we'll close in a few minutes for sure, but I just wanna stop for a moment uh, and acknowledge you for the good work that, that you are called uh, and compelled to do. There's a friend of mine by the name of Joel Calloway wrote a great book titled Becoming a Category of One. <laughs> and I think you, uh, of, of the many, many people that I know, I would put in a category of one. Um, so I wanna thank you for taking this on. What, what is a vagipreneur and how did that term come to be? Um, first of all, thank you for your very nice compliment. I am not a category of one. There are lots of people with me, next to me, in front of me, behind me, you know, diagonally from me, trying to push this boulder and this category uphill. And it really does take a village. Um, but the name Vagipreneur, same with orgasmic leadership, were things that other people came up with in sort of unrelated settings. So the first time we were interviewed for the New York Times article, this brilliant reporter by the name of Abby Allen said, oh, you're in the business of vaginas, the business of, okay, you're entrepreneurs in the vagina, you're vagipreneurs. And we immediately laughed and we started using it when we would go speak. You know, I didn't own it. I always give credit to her. It was her word. I acknowledge it in the book. And I was getting um, good responses when I used that in terms of it broke the ice. It made people um, more comfortable. And it's really, as it says, a person in the business of sexual and reproductive health. So right away, it reduces some of the, you know, discomfort. So Abby writes about all kinds of different things. And I reached out to her one day and I said, you came up with it. You came up with this word. I don't know if you're planning on using it. If you're not, I'd like to use it and I'd like to trademark it. So that's really how it came about. And the same with the book, Orgasmic Leadership. I was sitting next to a woman at a conference who was in a totally different space. It was a, a leadership kind of conference. 
And she says, you know, Rachel, everyone talks about leadership and entrepreneurship. You should talk about it in the context of the work that you do. You should call it orgasmic leadership. And I immediately said, that's the greatest name I ever heard. But I can tell you right now, there's no corporation in America who's bringing me in to talk about orgasmic leadership. They will bring me in to talk about business building. But if I put that out as a name of my talk, you know, I think I'll be hearing crickets and, and you know, won't have to leave my house that much. Uh, and that just percolated in my head. And one day I was, it just came to me as this is, this is a book. And I started very small. And this was way before I met Henry. And I just started interviewing people in the space that fascinated me. Um, and I did very structured interviews. And I had all this content. And people, and I was writing articles for Inc. and Huffington Post at the time. And I published you know, dozens and dozens of articles on every aspect of society and sex and anything you could think of and Facebook policies and uh, you name it the history of Viagra, a world without Viagra, all this stuff. And um, lots of people said to me, you have a book in you. And I'm like, oh, okay, I've always liked to write. I've always you know, enjoyed creative writing. And I could picture meeting with Henry the first time and we were sitting at a table. It was breakfast time. It wasn't the greatest lighting, but we were sitting there. And Henry in that one moment said, you are gonna be an author. You know, I came to that meeting saying, I have a lot of content. I have maybe some category knowledge. I have some thought leadership, but that's way different than being an author. So I credit um, Henry and the editor that I worked with uh, from turning me into a person who had a lot of content, a lot of energy, a lot of stories, and a lot of ideas into an author. It, as, as Henry says often, um, you know, our fourth grade teachers taught us that a authors were important people and that it was important to read. Well, you know, we know sometimes that maybe authors aren't uh, such important people, uh, but the marketplace looks at you and looks at me and looks at us just a little through a little different lens. And it does take courage to step out in faith and to write the right book and something that you are passionate uh, about there's a saying in the National Speakers Association that people are persuaded more by the depth of your conviction than by any logic uh, that you present or share. And you certainly have conviction in spades. Um, one last question. And I'm gonna call it the $10 million moment. Okay. When, you, when you look back, uh, in your history, in your rearview mirror, at that at that moment when you said, if if they were paying me ten million dollars, um, it would not be enough. If you, knowing what you know today, if you could go back to that younger, uh, your younger self at that time, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Be brave, go for it. If you fall down, you'll get up. Um, this is a marathon and not a sprint. Nice. It's um, funny what you said about conviction, Mark, because I used to say to my kids, you know, I'm always amazed that they don't, for the most part, teach public speaking or how to present in schools as, you know, from my perspective, oral and written communication, it's, mm -hmm. it's the most important skill you can have. It, it, it precedes everything. It's how you sell. It's how you, how you think, how you build relationships. 
And I would say to them, listen, even if you're saying something silly, say it with confidence, you know? And one of the things that I enjoy about the speaking is the ability, the feedback that I get that is the most meaningful to me is that I'm able to, you know, provide important content and make it entertaining. What, uh, if, if I could ask you a business question, um, if you and I were having a conversation and um, I asked you the question, I'm going to ask you the question, what are you looking for? Are you looking, are you currently now as we, as we come through the pandemic, um, are you looking for keynote speeches? Are you looking for new brands to be a part of? Are you looking to serve on more boards? Um, who do you want me to connect you to? Well, that's 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 easy. Yes, the answer is yes. But you know, primary, the the thing I like about the speaking is I it's maybe this is not uh, professional to say. It feels like easy money. It's something I enjoy. It's something that comes naturally. It's something that I I really get jazzed about the interaction with an audience. So that for sure. And I would say. Uh, board positions. I'm on a couple of boards. I want to expand that. Um, the business building, you know, I've been doing it a long time. So I'm very grateful that that's going well. So I would probably say those other two, but I'm a big fan of the paid Zoom webinar. <laughs> and I did a little research on you. Um, and now you tell I, me. <laughs> I, I found out that your favorite word is yes. So at the end of the book, uh, end of the chapter, and it was interesting, I picked people that just fascinated me and put them in the book. And so many of them are achieving this great success so many years later. So it's amazing to watch them. But given that everybody had a very different story, I wanted to have some organizing principle at the end of each interview. So you could at least look at people next to each other, even though they were doing dramatically different things. So James Lipton, when he um, used to, you know, obviously before he died, when he did In the After Studio, he asked these 10 questions to every guest at the end. And so your answer to that, um, the thing that you're referencing is, I asked everybody who I interviewed, what's your favorite word? And when I say yes, it's it just, it opens up possibilities. It, you know, not as much as Jim Carrey did in that movie, but the idea that you're expansive instead of um, turning inward as a way to look at life, as a way to look at opportunities, as a way to solve problems, as a way to in, you know, engage with the world and um, putting good energy out into the world. Rachel, thank you for your good work. And I think your future looks incredibly bright. Thanks, I'm not getting any younger, so. <laughs> well, none of us are, none of us are. <laughs> Uh, and then thank future... you to the, go ahead. I, I wanted to just thank the, the Indie Books community, which has been um, a great community to be a part of, to meet other authors, to have the way that Henry approaches this or approached it with me as you, you, you take this enormous mountain to climb and he breaks it down into pieces mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. come with an idea and he shapes it into a framework that you didn't even know you had the content for. So lots of people always ask if I have a second book. You know, if I did one, it would be 
you know, where are they now for all the people in, in the book that I highlighted, you know, when I identified them or was attracted to them and their businesses, you know, five years ago at this point, what's happened to them today in 2022 and beyond. Thank you. And everyone, thank you in our studio audience for joining us uh, today for this uh, podcast episode of the marketing with a book, not marketing your book, marketing with a book podcast. And that's a wrap.